All right. We are at 9.30, so if everyone wants to grab a seat, then we will get started here shortly. All right, before we get started, do we have someone who is willing to open in prayer with us? Vern, can I ask you? All right, so we are on chapter 9, section 1, on page 26, at the bottom of the page. We started that section last week, and we will pick it up where we had left off. So I'll read it, and then we had gone through Matthew and James, so we'll pick it up in Deuteronomy here. Okay, So God has endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. And we had looked at the first two. Do we want to have somebody read Deuteronomy 30, 19? And then we'll pick up the discussion here again. Deuteronomy 30, 19. Someone's going to get voluntold here real quick. Oh, Lisa's got it. Okay, choose life. Okay, the options are laid out. There's blessing and cursing, there's life and death. You need to choose. Okay, checkmate Calvinists. (laughs) You guys have to choose, and so there goes your whole neat, tidy little system. Okay, that's how I thought many years ago, because I just thought this view of God's sovereignty was impossible, Because there's all these commands in Scripture to choose. And further, I had lived 20-some years of experience knowing that I was making choices all the time. And so when a new thought about how the will operates was presented to me, I thought this was just completely impossible. Right? So you have to choose between a reformed understanding of how the will operates or you have free will. When in reality, this encompasses free will, okay? Uh, and we talked about that a little bit last week, and this is uh, doing a little bit of logic or a little bit of philosophy, but it's important to understand, again, the two, the two views of free will. And I'll maybe throw it out for interaction's sake. So the first view is libertarian free will. And is anyone willing to take a stab at how that understanding of the free will works? If no one's brave enough, I'll do it. But is anyone willing to take a stab at how libertarian free will works? Jeremy. That's right. Yeah, you can you can equally choose A or B in libertarian free will. Okay. And in compatibilist free will, how does that work? Can I give that one to you too? That's right. 
in the one view, yes. Yeah, and we would say, no, everyone's accountable for their actions because your actions are an outward display of what's in your heart. I saw, it was actually, it was fairly well done, a little seven-minute video I watched yesterday by a Christian apologist who was talking about, the, kind of on the other side of this, where kind of a, a, an evolutionary view of the world or a materialistic view of the world goes in the exact opposite direction, where rather than things being spontaneous, things are so pre-programmed into biology that people just, your, all your decisions are biological decisions. Uh, and so this video took this hypothetical case where this student in this ethics class uh, took his professor and bound him up and started torturing him as an experiment to see if he actually believed that all human behavior is just biological, right? Uh, because you can't, you can't object to me torturing you. You can't. That, I was just programmed that way and that's just the, you know, kind of the the way carbon reacts in my brain and, and so this is kind of a deterministic or naturalistic view that human behavior is just determined by your environment or your circumstances and so forth which also removes accountability and so I think the biblical view says we're accountable for what we choose your behavior is not just determined by environment or by biology or by your genetics you're actually accountable your thoughts actually mean something okay um and you will choose what you most strongly desire. And, and that, on that basis, you're accountable for what you do because it's a reflection of what's inside you. Does that make sense? That the, the reason we are accountable for our choices is because it, it's a reflection of what's in here. Our choices reflect the way we think. Our choices reflect the way we uh, process things. Okay? So when Moses says... I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Do these people have a real decision to make? Okay. Is everyone going to make the same decision? No. No, they won't. So what's the difference? Why will some listen to Moses' warning and others won't? If God just left that whole nation of Israel with no grace, none of his Holy Spirit, would anyone listen to Moses? Not one. They'd all perish. Okay? If God gave a full dose of his spirit to everyone in the desert, would anyone perish? They would not. Everyone would choose life. And here we are where we see some do this and some do that. That's an operation of renewed desires in some that others don't possess or do not yet possess and may in the future. But everyone is choosing what they want. And so there is no conflict, there's no discrepancy between understanding how the human will operates and presenting people with a choice. There's no conflict there. Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciles God's sovereignty with human free will. And he says, well, I'm not in the business of reconciling friends. There's nothing to reconcile. This is God's universe and things operate the way God has, has made them to operate. So there is no, ultimately, uh, any conflict. But I'll stop there. We've described this way back many months ago. Uh, and so maybe that's still fairly fresh on everyone's mind, so I don't want to belabor it. Um, but the, the point of section one here is that humans actually have a will. We have a natural liberty, and we have the power to understand the options, even the options we don't like. We can mentally take them in and process it. An unregenerate person can read the Bible and know what it says. Okay? You don't have to be a believer to read sentences. Okay? They can read the Bible. They can understand the gospel presentation. The difference is they don't care. Okay? It's not that they don't understand sentences. They do. They don't care. Okay? They don't care. So, yeah, no, I, I, I know what it says. I just, whatever. Right? Whereas the believing heart, the born-again heart, sees it, understands it, and wants it. Okay? It will reach for it. Both are making actual, real 
choices. Okay, And so this is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. Okay, So these choices are real. We have actual free will in the sense that we're always choosing and we're always choosing according to what we want. Have I described this in a way that makes sense? Tim and then Ron. I won't answer because Solomon has answered you. Go to Proverbs 21.1. I think 21.1. I'll have egg on my face if it's not. No, it is Proverbs 21.1. Who wants to read Proverbs 21.1? I don't think that's a different Proverbs 21 one than I've got. Okay. And that said of the king, how much more for Matt and Tim? We're not even a king with court advisors, right? Because God, God has the strings to the heart, but the king does whatever he wants. Right? God turns the heart, and the king does what's in his heart to do. So it's free in the sense that he's always doing what he wants. But God has the ability and the power to change what those wants are. And in actual experience, this happens all the time. Why do I... Just wake up and figure, yeah, I should do this today. As a Christian, I understand that to be God's providence, right? Um, but realistically, we're, we're, always just, we're always doing the things that make sense to us, the things that we want to do kind of as opportunities arise, right? And sometimes, sometimes it's not even dealing with your will. It's just the opportunity. Like the day has gone a certain way, and so all of a sudden there's an open door to do this, and it makes sense to you to do that, right? So God's providence isn't just for the big things like making sure Jesus betrays Jesus. It's not just for the big ticket items. It's for everything. And if you start pulling apart human behavior and the interrelationships between people, think of how complex this gets. How one person's choices affect everything around them. Right? And sometimes we'll see a set of circumstances coming together and we'll kind of see like three things line up and we'll see that God clearly did something in this set of circumstances because three things line up. And you'll get, you know, goosebumps and, oh, God, that's clearly a God thing. What about the 10 million things that are going to result from that little seemingly nothing encounter that will have a ripple effect in a thousand years from now? Okay? Something smaller than the size of my pinky fingernail changed the course of world history when Archduke Ferdinand was going to his coronation. And somebody sent something smaller than this at him at a very high velocity and killed him. And it set the entire world in a war. Or there's the story in, uh, in the Old Testament where some archer draws his bow at random. And what are the odds? It finds an exact spot in the king's armor where it can kill him. And he said he just shot it at random. Well, who sent that arrow? <laughs> who sent that arrow to the exact right crack? Right? There, there's so many, there's so many, and there's this little, I forget how it goes. For want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For loss of a shoe, a horse was lost. For want of a horse, a battle was lost. For want of a battle, the war was lost. Right? You, you start thinking, a, a horseshoe nail can change the outcome of world history. A bullet can change the outcome of world history. And, and so how... You know, what if that guy that shot Archduke Ferdinand had contracted polio as a kid and not made it to adulthood? The world would be a different place, (laughs) 
right? So all these, all these things, even that we're not thinking about how they're, they're tied, they, providentially, there's a huge story that's far more complex than our little brains can, uh, can capture. Ron and then Don. Nope. But saying Ron and Don, that makes me miss hockey, uh, hockey night in Canada. <laughs> I miss Coach's Corner. That was Ron and Don. That was good stuff. Yeah. Will he do it through other means? Yeah. Right, and I think I know what you're saying. So sometimes God, well often, God doesn't play his hand and he uses means to bring things about, right? You'll actually notice about, let's say, with Jonah and Nineveh, actually there's no olive branch really. Or a better example would be, is it Hez- who gets extra 15 years? Hezekiah? Who gets 15 years added, right? Okay, um, there's actually no offer from God. There's just a judgment. That's it. That's all God says. He doesn't say, if you repent, I'll give you 15 more. That's not part of the offer at all. Okay? Same as Moses interceding, or uh, Abram interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no olive branch offered whatsoever. It's just, I'm, I'm just going to do this. And then the negotiation starts. Okay? So, does that undo what I've just suggested, and I don't think so. I think that's part of the story as well. Because God knows, before he enters this negotiation with Abram, he knows exactly how it's going to go. He knows how many righteous people are there. He knows how Abram's going to react. God acting the way he acts is like God putting himself in the story. But even when he... You know, it's like the director putting himself in the movie. (laughs) Okay? Um... But he knows what his part is and how this is going to interact, right? So even if no offer is made, the negotiation with Abram is part of the story that God wrote. I agree, and that's what they should do. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. No, it's not a rabbit trail. So, certain Christians will understand this. Well, this means you need to put a picture of that Corvette you want up on your wall. And you need to focus that because, you know, the law of attraction and, and so forth, and God will give you the desires of your heart. Name it and claim it. And I know that's not where you're at, for sure. But a lot of people understand it kind of at that surface level. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That second part's actually really important. To enjoy him forever. The reason you exist is for joy. Your joy. In the Lord. That's what you're here for. Is to rejoice in the Lord. That's what you were made for. Okay? Now, if you are a born-again son or daughter of God. Everything that you do, every action, every task you put your hand to should be for the purpose of joy, to glorify God. If you are doing what you do to the glory of God, your greatest desire in everything that you do is for God to be glorified. Okay? That's your chief focus. God, be glorified in what I'm about to do here. If you're doing that, 
God is always giving you the desire of your heart because the desire of your heart is to glorify God. <laughs> okay? Rejoice yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Okay? So everything I want to do is so that God will be glorified. My consuming passion in my heart for everything, whether it's my dairy farm, whether it's my family, whether it's my golf game, whether it's preaching, is for the glory of God. It's all about God. God will give me the desires of my heart because guess what? He's going to be glorified in all those things. This isn't a name it and claim it. This is, it's all about God's glory. He will give you what you most strongly desire. If your strongest desire is for God to be glorified, you're always going to get what you want. Because God is always glorified in everything. So we're always getting what the chief end of man is. So this verse, I mean, we, and so often we turn Bible verses in on ourselves, right? This verse isn't about you getting a new tractor or, you know, your wife staying 26 for the rest of your life and you having white teeth. This, <laughs> for example. <laughs> this is about glory and joy from top to bottom, from beginning to end. The Christian life is to be a life of joy. And if it is, you'll always get what you want. Does that make sense? This is actually really important. Does this make sense? No? Mm hmm. He had free will in the sense that he did what he wanted to do. He did not have libertarian free will. Yep. Well, and we would say as Christians, God did. Because we're defining free will, we're, we're working with two different definitions of free will. And again, if we want to do this thought experiment thing, where we think, where do our assumptions come from? Everyone in this room, if you're under about 300 years old, I think that's all of us, we assume a certain definition a certain definition of free will that is not biblical. We assume a certain view of free will that comes from the Enlightenment, whose sole project was to kill God, to kill God from our thinking. And man became the reference point for everything. Okay? And the Enlightenment took two different directions. One is towards rationalism, where you just, if you want to understand the world, sit in your chair and start thinking about it. Okay? And this is the stuff of philosophers. But what, what's the starting point? <laughs> My head is the starting point. What makes sense to me, I'm going to interpret everything through the light of me as the final authority to interpret reality. It takes another uh, path in terms of science, which is if I want to understand the world, I have to go out and observe it. So one guy sits in his chair and starts thinking. The next guy goes out into the laboratory and starts observing but in both cases, who is the final inerrant authority of everything? Me. I can trust my senses. Okay? Science is authoritative because I observed something. Okay? Um, but man is always in charge. And Christianity's chief claim is, no, you're not. This is God's world and God's rules. And so if we come into this discussion assuming a view of free will in which man is lord of the universe... None of this makes sense. If we start with this is God's universe, his story, his rules, it's humbling and it, it cuts against the way we typically understand free will, but that's why I want to work at the level of definition of free will. Compatibilist free will. You do what you want. You're doing what you want. You're free, you're free in the sense that there's not an external compulsion on you forcing you to do something against your will. How's that? You've never worked with that assumption. Yeah. yeah. So it's saying it's not that. 
it's not that I'm trying to move right, but then God puts this force field on me and I... It, But the clay still has some questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he did. Not directly. Let's go there. Let's go to Romans 9. And I think this is the closest we get to an answer to the why questions. And I'll agree, it's not an outright answer. I think it's an implied answer. Before we get into the text, I'm going to mention something, that, and it just happened here. When you are in a position of teaching something, a good teacher should be anticipating the objections he's going to face in class so that you can try to answer them and and anticipate them. Paul is a great teacher. That means Paul knows that if people are understanding him correctly, they're going to raise certain objections. For example, if Paul is really going to push grace really hard... Okay? and make everything all about grace, and his audience is understanding him correctly, they're going to say something like, well, what shall we say then? Shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? Okay? That question only comes if you're actually understanding him correctly. And he anticipates that in Romans 6 verse 1. And he says, by no means. And then he gives his answer. In Romans 9, Paul is emphasizing the sovereignty of God, that some are made for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And he's anticipating, if these people understand what I'm teaching, the objection that's going to come back at me is, how can God still find fault for who can resist his will? Right? Now, if Paul is teaching a libertarian or kind of an Arminian view of free will, he could very easily diffuse that. He'd say, no, 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 you don't, you don't get it. What I'm teaching is that your free will is the final decisive thing. And this objection would make no sense. The objection that happens in Romans 9 is only because Paul is teaching that God's will is the control over man's will. Does that make sense so far? The objection only comes if Paul is teaching what we today call Calvinism. If Paul is teaching libertarian free will, he would just say, no, no, that's not an objection because you, you don't understand. You have absolute free will. And objection is gone. Right? In fact, libertarian free will is designed to get around the objection that Paul foresees here. Okay? Are we, are we understanding this so far? Are we together? Am I explaining this properly? Okay. Okay. Paul's teaching about God's sovereign choice. So, well, let's start in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a hard teaching. Okay? By nature, we do not like that teaching. And Paul's teaching that, and he's going to say, now you guys are thinking, okay, so before they were yet born, God gave grace to one that he did not give to the other. People are going to say there's injustice. Okay? He's going to hear the that's not fair objection. Okay? And if Paul is teaching that it's finally up to these boys in the final decisive sense, then that's not fair, objection just falls away. Because Jacob and Esau are each decisive over their own fate. 
So Paul's anticipating this objection. And he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And at that point you say, how could a libertarian view of free will even survive? Why are Christians even discussing this? It just outrightly says that human will is not the decisive thing. Human will is real, yes. But it's absolutely not decisive. I mean, how much more clear does he have to be to say it can't be libertarian free will? Yes, the will is true, but this salvation does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. Okay? And God does what he does with his creation. And then Paul anticipates another objection in 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Okay, so how can we be accountable if God is the master storyteller and his will, in, in some sense, limits our free will or at least moves our free will in a certain direction and not another? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Okay, so Howard's pointing out correctly, that's not an answer. What is it? What is it? Paul's not answering the question directly yet. This is saying all of our heads hurt right now. We all have an Excedrin headache thinking about this. And to some degree, we're not going to understand how this all works. What he is doing us is putting us in our proper place. Just because you don't understand it, just because your head hurts right now with everything I've just taught you from chapter 6 till now, at the end of the day, you're a pot. You're made out of clay. And you do not put demands on your potter. Okay? He's putting us in the proper position to receive God's revelation rather than to test it. And then it says, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And then here, he says it in the form of a question, but I think this is the closest we get to an answer for the why questions. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? And then he goes on to quote the prophet Hosea. In both cases... God's consuming passion here is for his own glory. Okay? God is glorified in judging sin, and God is glorified in pardoning sinners. God is holy. That means God has wrath and God has grace. And sin, in some sense, is necessary in the story for God to display the fullness of his character. If there's no fall, if there's no sinners... Does God ever get to show his white-hot hatred at sin? He does not. If there's no fall, if there's no sinners who hate God, is there an opportunity for God to show his amazing grace and redeem a great mass of them? In an unfallen world, God does not show the fullness of who he is. So the fall, the presence of sin, the presence of sinners is, is almost a... I have to be careful how I talk about this. But it, it, that is the tool by which God shows who he really is. And it doesn't answer fully the why question, but I think it, I think it does tie into Psalm 37, 4. This is all about glory. This is all about God's glory. Okay? He didn't have to create this world. He didn't have to ordain that a fall happens. Uh, but he did. And so we're left scratching our heads. Well, why? How does this work? And we need to be humble enough to say, despite all our fancy terms and, and philosophy and theology, at a certain point we've got to punt it and say, I don't, I don't completely get this. <laughs> My brain weighs two and a half pounds. It stores so and so much. And, I just, I and yet at the same time, if we are clay and we bend the knee to the potter, we have to... <laughs> We have to go where this goes, whether we understand it or not. And I know you, of 
all people who respect Scripture. I, I know that. But I think that's as close as we can get to the why or the how. So when I say, does this make sense, I know, I know what you're saying. No, it doesn't. My head hurts. And, and to some degree, at a certain point, let's play three downs as hard as we can, but at a certain point, we, we have to punt. Right. As you should. Can I take the pressure off of you? That is absolutely the right instinct to be concerned. But at the end of the day, you can't save them. This actually frees you to say, <laughs> it's okay if Howard and Matt don't have the answers. That's okay. Don't put that much pressure on you. It's good to want to know, but don't put that much pressure on yourself. Leave room for the Lord to work in their heart, despite all the mistakes that you're going to make. Despite, and, and that should be freeing for all of us, you know, wayward children. Where did we go wrong? What did we do? Well, maybe nowhere. Yeah, maybe you can learn something for the next one. Maybe you can teach your kids something for your grandkids that you wish you would have known. But at the end of the day, if I got the kind of kids I deserved, some days they try to show me what that would look like. But... But at the end of the day, this is about God's grace, top to bottom. And God will use your imperfect and sometimes even wrong explanation of the gospel or of a certain whatever. He can do that. So please, pastorally, let this take the pressure off of you rather than put it on. If there's a certain pressure to say, I want to understand and submit myself to what the Bible says and I want to go where the Bible forces me to go, that's correct. Give yourself some room to, to breathe as well. And keep in mind... Your brain probably weighs about the same as mine. And, we're, and not only are we finite, but we're also sinful. So our understanding is severely handicapped in several ways. There was another hand somewhere. Someone had their hand up. Maybe not. Maybe someone was stretching Where did you? Where did the stars go? Like they're still there, but they're not that. The contrast of darkness makes it pop, makes a difference. So, the whole observing what things did in production of the sun, that shows.
and I think, and that's maybe a, a good place to close the discussion. If we frame this, and this helps me, and I hope it will help you too. When there's especially difficult circumstances, or I'm feeling especially low or whatever, and invariably we're going to ask the why questions. Why did this have to happen? Why is this, you know, and most of the time we don't have an answer. Sometimes we get one down the road, often we don't. To think about it in terms, to take the pressure off the why questions, is to think about it in terms of God's glory. If you have a theology of glory that undergirds everything, a a correct answer for every difficulty in your life, why is this happening? For God's glory. For God's glory. Why? I, I don't know. What's he accomplishing? I don't know. Will I find out more in five years or ten years or 80 years than I know today? Maybe, but it doesn't matter. Because it's happening for God's glory. Okay? It's happening for God's glory. A, a tough marriage situation, losing your job, depression, what, even sin. Why, you know, why are there these snares? Why are these setbacks? Why is this so frustrating? Why is this not working out? We can always say, in the final end, for God's glory. It will either be the glory of judgment in a situation or it will be the, the glory of redemption in a situation, but God will always be glorified. Okay? God is as glorified in Judas's end as he is in Peter's end. Okay? God is glorified in both. He's glorified when we see the futility of sin in Judas and he's glorified when we see uh, the grace of pardoning someone who denied Christ finish well. He's glorified in both outcomes. And that, for me, is helpful. It doesn't take away all the other questions. Well, yeah, but why me? Why is this? Why this? Maybe most of you have an understanding of why things happen, and you can see it better than I can. I, I have resigned myself to many things in my life, just I, I don't think it'll ever make sense. I remember Tanya's uncle telling me one time, he was a church planter up to... Arden, he sold his dairy farm in Landmark, and then he was going to go with a bunch of families and go start farming in Arden, kind of as a church planting thing, and that never really went very well farming up there for anyone, and it was kind of half poverty farming. Things didn't work out, and then they're off to Venezuela on the mission field, and he told this to me as an old man, probably 80. He said, I still have no idea what going to Arden was about. That just felt like five years of failure in my life and then we were off to the mission field anyway. Why couldn't God just have called me from a dairy farm that was actually going somewhere in Landmark? Well, Uncle Elmer, for God's glory. And beyond that, I can't tell you <laughs> any, anything. We don't know, but it is for God's glory. That much we know. Let's close in prayer and then we can have some time for coffee. Lord, thank you for uh, this discussion. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Lord, even though it feels like we have so many more questions that you have not directly answered for us, either in your word or in circumstances that don't become clearer over time. Lord, thank you for the sincerity and the honesty in how some of these questions hurt and how they gall at us and poke at us and make us feel inadequate and even make us feel scared sometimes. But Lord, I pray that we would have a settled confidence in the things that you do say, that this is for your glory, that you are working out your purposes, that you are the potter and we are the clay. Lord, forgive us when we want to elevate ourselves to a level of decisiveness or a level of knowledge that you have not seen fit to give us. Help us to be humble. Help us to just accept it, to trust, um, but also in a way that takes your word seriously and that wants to mine out as much as we can from your word and to be obedient as far as we understand it and as far as we can understand it. And I pray that you would give us a spirit of understanding and humility both. Lord, and when we discuss big and complex topics, 
as we have this morning, Lord, I pray that you would erase from our memory anything that I or anyone else has spoken that is not helpful, that is not upbuilding. Lord, please remove that from our memory that it would not do damage. Uh, and at the same time, wherever truth has been spoken, wherever your spirit has led us in the right way, Lord, I pray that you would push that into the corners uh, and that we would get consistent, that we would uh, walk the talk, that we would live according to the knowledge you have given us. Lord, we commit the rest of this morning into your hands. I pray for each one's heart that we would be soft and uh, open to receive from you, to be fed by you, by your word, uh, and also by communion. Lord, feed us, make us hungry, make us receptive, and make us thankful. Lord, and I pray that underneath this all, that we would understand everything is for your glory. From creation to history to each one of us, Lord, we exist for your glory. To point to you, the great storyteller. Lord, and I pray that we would find joy in our station wherever you have called us. We commit this all into your kind hands. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.